And as you turn there, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I don't know about you, but I'm still reeling from Steve's overwhelming excitement about Sunday school. Wahoo. <laughs> I think that'll go down in the annals of our church right there. <laughs> We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 as we continue our time in Matthew's gospel as we look at the upside down kingdom that Jesus is bringing here on earth. There are cities that we know only because of important events that have happened in them. It's the only reason we know their name. And for example, Nicaea. We just repeated the Nicaean Creed. You don't probably even know where Nicaea is, but we know it was a city where an important creed was created. Nuremberg. We wouldn't know Nuremberg other than that's where the, the trials took place after World War II. Gettysburg. We would not know Gettysburg had it not been for that pivotal battle that was fought there during the Civil War. Turin. Who here knows even where Turin is? We wouldn't even know the city, this little town of, of Turin, if we're not for a, a, an important shroud that was discovered there. Wittenberg. We would not know the term Wittenberg, the little town in Germany, were it not for Luther, that one day who tacked up 95 thoughts or theses on the church in the town square. Liverpool. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't deserve to be in quite this place, but we wouldn't know Liverpool. None of us would. We'd go, Liverpool, what is that? Had it not been the home of the Beatles. I want to introduce you to another town. An important town, a town called Caesarea Philippi that is in our text today. This needs to be added to this list because it is there for the first time on earth that Jesus is declared the son of the living God, the Messiah that was foretold for millennia. Look with me. At verse 13 in chapter 16, there God's word says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you Say that I am. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray to you because you tell us in your word that you are the one who takes these words on this page and makes them live in our hearts. So I pray to you and I implore you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've learned through our pursuit of this building expansion over the past couple of years that blueprints have incredible detail. Page after page after page of detail. Telling the builder everything from what type of windows and doors to put in to what type of insulation rating it should be. From firewall thickness to proper entrance and egress. From sprinkler systems, unfortunately, to grading and drainage. In our time in Matthew thus far, we've really been looking at the details of the blueprint of the kingdom of God. That's what we've been looking at, these details. The kingdom values such as kindness over control, serving over being served, humility over prominence. The kingdom that encourages internal reality versus external behavior. The detail of the eternal being more important than the temporal. The details of the future treasure over immediate reward. These are the, the pages and pages of details of the blueprints of the kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom that, God, that Jesus has been presenting to his disciples. But at its most basic, blueprints give you two things. A foundation and the structure on top of that foundation. And here today, we're given the foundation of this upside-down kingdom and then the framework of this upside-down kingdom, the structure, if you will. And he does it in a place called Caesarea Philippi, a little town north in the northeast hills above the Sea of Galilee. He wants to be alone with his disciples for this. He wants to reveal who he is to them. And so he asks this leading question, who do people say that I am? Okay, I've been here two plus years. What have you heard about who people say that I am? What are they saying? And so they tell him. Some say John the Baptist. If you remember back, that's who Herod thought Jesus was. John the Baptist raised back to life. This great prophet raised back to life. Others, he say, they say, others say Elijah. This is, of course, uh, the, the reference comes from Malachi. Actually, the very last verse in the English Bible tells us that before the, the Messiah comes, before this new age will be born, there will become, come Elijah who prepare the way for him. He says, others say, you're, you're Jeremiah. See, the Jews had other books that they thought were sacred. And in two of these books, Maccabees and Ezra's, there was this, this uh, writing that 
Jeremiah took before the fall of Babylon in 586, he took the ark and he hid the ark. And before the Messiah was to come, Jeremiah would come back with the ark. So there's a lot of speculation going on about who Jesus is. But what's important to Jesus is not what everybody thinks of him right now. It's what these 12 men think of him, who have been with him two plus years. So he says, who do you say that I am? You've been with me. You've seen what I did. You've heard my teachings. Who do you think that I am? And it's here that Peter proclaims the foundation of the upside-down kingdom. And he says in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The bigger the structure, the more solid the foundation. That's just a basic principle of engineering. If you're going to build a big structure, you need a big, solid foundation. When the Twin Towers were being built in the late 60s, they had plans for them to go up 100 plus stories, being the the highest building built at that time. So what did they do? They had to dig down 70 feet, uh, twice more than twice what our bell tower is. 70 feet down to, in order to find solid bedrock so that they could build on the solid foundation underneath Manhattan. God's plan is to build his church here. God's plan is to build a massive structure. And so he needs a solid foundation. The church is going to spread all throughout the world. It's going to be massive and powerful. This, this church is going to stand against Satan's kingdom in this world. So it requires the best, the strongest, the most reliable rock foundation that there is. And so Jesus says, he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, you, that's your name. And on this rock... I will build my church. This is one of the most studied verses in the New Testament, by the way. Because you hear that and you go, Peter? On the surface, it would appear that that Jesus is talking about building his church on Peter. Peter is the rock, the foundation of the church. This is what the Catholic Church believes. This is the interpretation of the Catholic Church for almost 2,000 years. And I just want to ask you, objectively, how's that foundation? I think it's coming out of that foundation has been a lot of terrible doctrine, heretical doctrine, like Peter being the first pope. Nowhere in scripture. Like, like Peter, thus the Roman Catholic Church being the only one true church. Like, like Peter was given the keys, the authority, thus popes have 
godlike authority. And it could go on and on and on. But just consider a moment the kind of foundation that Peter provided. Scripturally. Just think of it scripturally. What kind of foundation was Peter? He will, in the years to come, if you know your Bible, in Galatians, he'll go up to the Galatian church and he'll start withdrawing from the Gentiles because they're not Jewish and had to be corrected by Paul. You're not acting in accordance with the gospel. It's an unreliable foundation. And within a few short months, Peter himself is going to deny his very confession here. He's going to deny even knowing Jesus. What an unstable foundation. Still, in a few short moments, you can just look at your Bibles and look down a few short verses. He's going to encourage Jesus not to go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Don't do that thing from which you were actually sent to do. An unwise foundation. Peter's not a strong and reliable foundation. No human is. He's just a weak and a sinful man, just like you and me. That's why churches cannot be built on any one man, including the pastor. He's just as weak and as sinful as you are. He cannot and should not become the foundation of the church. Otherwise, the church will be built on an unreliable and unstable foundation. I hope and I pray that you, if you're a visitor here, go to your church. I hope and I pray that the members here come to this church not to hear me or to you and your pastor, wherever you are, but to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the foundation. And that brings us to our second interpretation of this verse. The gospel is the rock. In this interpretation, we understand Peter's confession to be the antecedent. On this rock, what rock? On Peter's confession. Christian orthodoxy throughout the centuries have supported this interpretation. That the church be built on the foundation of Peter's confession, being the divine Messiah of God. And that interpretation makes sense, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It makes sense. How is the church built? How do people become part of God's family? By hearing Peter's confession and believing it, right? One by one, trusting in Jesus' complete work and not your own work. One by one. Believing in Jesus' perfectly lived life, being the source of your righteousness and not your rightness. One by one, having faith in Jesus' substitutionary atonement, that he went to the cross and, and gave himself, allowed himself to die in your place for your sins, paying that penalty. One by one, embracing the fact that Jesus did raise from the dead. And he lives and so shall we. Now, if you believe that, you're a member of God's household. You're a part of God's church, universal. That's how the church is built. 
on the foundation of Peter's confession. Yet there's a third interpretation here. Maybe can go along with the second interpretation. That Jesus himself is the rock. Jesus is the rock. So you, you, you make hand motions. You are Peter, but on this rock, he might have said, I will build my church. Seems that's what the New Testament writers understood. You see it again and again in the New Testament that Jesus is the foundation. He's called the cornerstone. He's called the rock. Actually, it's interesting. In Peter's first letter to the scattered churches, he seems to be thinking of this very moment as he writes in verse two, in chapter 2, verse 4 of his first letters, he says to this, As you come to him, that is Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he quotes from Isaiah 28, For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter seems to interpret Jesus' words here as Jesus is the rock. Because Jesus is the stable, reliable, unwavering foundation on which our faith grows. He is the Christ, as as Peter said. He is the Messiah. And here's the thing. He would not have any power to save if it weren't for Peter's second half of his confession. You are the son of the living God. That is a divine title drawn directly from from, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Peter is saying you are the Savior, you're the Messiah, and you're God. Jeremy Bowen states in a new BBC commentary on Jesus, he says, the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't the important thing is that people believe him what people believe him to be, have been let me read that again the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't the important thing is what people believe him to have been couldn't be more wrong couldn't be more wrong Our faith stands and falls on who you believe Jesus Christ to be. The Son of the living God. Divine God come in human form. Just as we confessed in the Nicene Creed a few moments ago. Who Jesus is, is everything. Peter was proclaiming that Jesus was God come in the flesh. And as a matter of fact, if you still have your Bibles open, you can just peer over to chapter 17 because in in six days, Jesus is going to show his divinity. He's going to give them a peek into who he is physically by transfiguring right before them. It says there that his face becomes like the sun and his clothes become bright like white light. It's a picture of God. And God the Father there in in chapter 17 even confirms that by, by using the same words Peter uses. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Bowden couldn't be more wrong. Who Jesus is is central, it's crucial, it's essential. His divinity is absolutely necessary for the gospel to have any power. Otherwise, as I said last week, that is just a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away. Has no bearing on your life whatsoever if he is not God. Jesus being the divine Savior forms the very foundation of our faith. That's what Peter's saying. You are the rock. The second part of every blueprint is the framework that goes on top of that foundation. What is the framework that goes on top of Christ? And that framework, as we see here, is the church itself. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church on the rock of the confession and of Jesus Christ being the divine Son of God. But what does the church look like? I think there's two descriptors of the church that we find here. First, the church is going to be powerful. He says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This church, this, this structure that Jesus came to build that's going to go on top of his confession, is going to be powerful. This verse is many times misunderstood. Many read this verse and they think that the church is in a, in a defensive posture. Have you ever read it that way? But I think that's the wrong way to read this. Gates are defensive, Right? And the gates of hell are standing and will not stand against the onslaught of the church. The church is an offensive agent in the world. It does not have a defensive posture. When a light switch is turned on, light pushes the darkness back. And that's what we are to be in this world. Jesus is building his church here on earth to be offensive, not defensive. In the later months of 1862, during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln was angered by General George McClellan's inactivity because he had a superior force and he was just sitting, not attacking the Confederate forces. In the end, Abraham wrote McClellan a note with just one line. He wrote him, if you don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Like McClellan's army, the church is overwhelmingly powerful. And it's supposed to be on the offensive. We're given the word of God. In Hebrews 4 and in Ephesians 6, it's likened to a sword. That's an offensive weapon. We're given the Holy Spirit. In 1 Timothy 1, it, it tells us that the Word tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us courage. We're given the gospel of Jesus Christ that is both offensive and offensive. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2 tells us some, to some the gospel is the smell of death, to others the fragrance of life. Pastor Jack Hayford 
wrote, I don't perceive my calling as one to protest the culture, but to proclaim the gospel. That is what we are to do. Not protest the culture, but proclaim the gospel. So whatever side of the vaccine issue you are on, that's not your gospel. Stop proclaiming that gospel and start proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Whatever side of masking you're on, stop proclaiming that gospel and start proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Don't waste your time. Learn from the detailed blueprints that we have been studying thus far in Matthew. It's not the temporal that's important. It's the eternal that is critical. Go on the offensive. Pound the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel isn't medical. It's spiritual. Lastly, the authority of the church. We see the power of the church, but we also see the authority of the church here. You see, the church is given three primary missions in Scripture. Three primary missions in Scripture. The first primary mission we are given is to glorify God. That's the primary mission, to glorify God in all we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That eat and drink is a merism, two opposites meaning the whole in all of your life. Glorify God. Second mission of the church. We are to evangelize the lost. As just stated, we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see there in verse 17, I skipped over this, but if you look down at verse 17, Jesus says, for flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. That should be an exhale for everyone here who's ever shared or wants to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because our responsibility is to give testimony to Jesus. It's God's responsibility to convert that person, to turn on the light in that person's heart and soul. We are not to become skilled apologists. If you want to become a skilled apologist, that's fine, but that is not what is going to save that person's soul. The person that is going to save that soul is the Holy Spirit who's going to take your feeble words and in some way make them make sense. Because Peter did not figure it out. That's what Jesus is saying. Peter didn't go, oh, 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 I get it, after two years. No. Turned on the light in his heart. And that's what's going to happen as you share Christ. So just be a witness to what Christ has done in your life and objectively in Scripture. And third mission of the church is to bind and loose. And that's what we see here. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. Affirm 
and unaffirm people's confession of faith. Now, hang with me just for a second. We're going to get slightly technical, and then we're going to horn back out. So hang with me. Here Jesus gives Peter, who represents the apostles, the keys of the kingdom. I give you the keys, he says. Keys are a symbol of authority in Scripture. So he's giving them him authority. Here Jesus gives Peter and the apostles authority to bind and loose. Binding and loosing, he's using rabbinic terms here, mean to allow or disallow conduct. To allow in or separate out. So here Jesus is giving the apostles through Peter, their representative, authority to bind and loose. Authority to allow in and exclude. Authority to allow people into the church and exclude them out. Now, if you look to your right in your Bible, in Matthew 18, we have a very famous verse there, 18, 15 through 20, we see these same words being spoken by Jesus in reference to the church. Same language. This is the well-known church discipline process. If a brother sins, go and show him his fault. If he repents, praise God. If he doesn't, take two or three with you. Explain his sin to him. If he repents, praise God. If he doesn't, go on to the third step in the process, which is tell it to the church. Okay? Same word used in 16 is used here in 18, Ecclesia. If he still is unrepentant, Treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector, representing both Jew and Gentile here. In other words, exclude him from participating in the family of God. That is the authority the church has to bind and loose, to allow in and exclude out. Perhaps this language is a little easier to understand. The church is given authority to affirm a person's confession of faith, looking at what they say and how they live. We call that membership. And unaffirm their confession of faith when there is unrepentance to a serious outward sin. We call that excommunication. That is the authority the church has that they're talking about here. And that authority, brothers and sisters, is serious, serious authority. Grave authority. And it should be taken deadly seriously by every member of every church. The most important thing we do here at this church, the most important thing, is, of course, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second most important thing we do is membership. That's the second most important thing we do here. Accepting people into membership, and when necessary, excluding the unrepentant sinner. In fact, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the church stands and falls on this authority. Once upon a time, there was a church that stood for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
It was little but faithful, led by Pastor Gus. They struggled, but they loved hearing about how Jesus saved them from their sins by sacrificing himself. They loved each other. They loved their community. And Pastor, let's call him Gospel Gus, preached the gospel faithfully every single week. One day, Nate moved into town and started attending. Nate was a nice guy. Nice guy Nate got to know the few of the members of the church. He helped around the church, even in their homes, raking and fixing. Everybody loved Nate because he was a nice guy. A member meeting came around and he wanted to join the church. The members didn't know too much about Nate spiritually. They didn't know if he knew what the gospel was. But everyone thought he was a pretty nice guy. So they voted him in. Soon Susan moved into town and began coming to the sewing group. She didn't talk much, but she loved to serve. Server Susan didn't, did all kinds of things around the church, cooking for potlucks, cleaning the bathrooms, making meals for shut-ins. Everyone loved her because she never wanted kudos. She never wanted credit. She just loved to serve. A member meeting came around and she wanted to join the church. They didn't know too much about her spiritually. They they didn't know if she knew the gospel. But everyone loves server Susan. So they voted her in. Over the years, many others came and were accepted into membership. Numbers Norman, who became the treasurer. Leader Larry, who became an elder. Lovable Lucy, gatherer Gail, charismatic Chris, and a whole host of others. The church was growing, seemingly thriving, So they were all let in. But not much was known about them spiritually. Eventually, Pastor Gospel Gus retired, and a new pastor was called. Thus began the ministry of Pastor Nominal Nelson. He preached interesting sermons and taught them how to live good, moral lives. Over the years, through the ministry of accepting Abby, the church began to be more open and affirming to different ways of living life. Through the ministry of Peaceful Paul, the church began to focus on various justice movements in the culture. By this time, Jesus was hardly mentioned from the pulpit. When he was, it was in the context of loving your neighbor by accepting who they were. When the gospel was mentioned, it was used synonymously with bean suppers, food pantries, thrift stores, and serving the less fortunate. Member meetings began to become less frequent. And they became more like business meetings, just passing a dwindling budget. Toward the end of nominal norms, pastorate involvement began to wane. Budgets began to shrink. Pate began to peel. After nominal norms, norm passed away, the few people that were left hung around for about a decade just trying to keep the doors open. One day, the town approached the church and offered to buy the building so a new home for the historical society could be found. Thus ends the story. Is that authority important? 
church can stand or fall because of it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I ask you, Heavenly Father, to challenge us, convict us where we need conviction. Encourage those who are weak. Reach out to those who are wandering. Save those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen.